Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. I'll be interviewing top experts in their fields, and we'll also be delving into fascinating backstories from deep within the world of medicine. So, I'm confident you'll find the information in these podcasts valuable, and they will assist you on your journey to optimum health. Welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. And remember, you can trust me because I'm a doctor. <laughs> Our guest today is Mr. Troy Greer. Welcome to the show, Troy. Thank you, Gil. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. What a pleasure it is to have you here. Troy Greer, MBA, MSHA, FACHE. Is a, lot of, the, a lot of alphabet soup. A lot of alphabet soup. Uh, a lot of my, a lot of my uh, uh, guests have these alphabet soups. Troy is the president and CEO at Boone Hospital Center here in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, Boone Hospital Center used to be part of a larger uh, network of hospitals. We went independent a couple of years ago, and Troy, bless his heart. Uh, came in to rescue the ship, be the knight in shining armor, and take us into independent, uh, an independent successful trajectory. You know, it, it is interesting. Uh, the first time I heard what they were doing, it was kind of intriguing. I, I don't know that anyone would call me the white knight at the moment, uh, because the idea of, of going independent and then facing the, the first pandemic in 100 years was huh. not the way you would have drawn it up. Uh, the good news is the foundation with the people in Columbia the employees that come to work every day, the board, they laid a beautiful foundation. It's just going to need a little nurturing to get us kind of through the pandemic noise and, and still the last little bit of the transition. There's still some things that we're working through uh, even two years later. Uh, most of the time when you change even one IT application, people tell you it can take two years for it to be normalized. We changed 142 in 48 hours. So oh <clears throat> a little bit of a heavy lift and, and certainly all the the cool employees we have over there deserve the credit. Fantastic. So, Troy, when in your life did you figure out that you wanted to be an executive? Or you was know, that something that happened later on in life? Was it, 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 was almost, it was almost an accident. Huh. Um, I, I, I had the opportunity. My dad was in the military, uh, retired as a colonel, very grateful for his service. My brother served and retired as lieutenant colonel. My son's currently enlisted and uh, serving over in Vilsec, Germany. So it kind of had this family history. I received uh, an ROTC scholarship to go become a physician for the Army, huh. but discovered a love for finance and, and economics and accounting, and it just didn't seem to, to kind of blend. As an undergrad or maybe high As school. an undergrad, As yeah. an undergrad, okay. And that was eventually at the University of Alabama? Uh, yes, started at Vanderbilt, um, ended up dropping that scholarship and realizing, you know, one of those first economic lessons in life is uh, don't go broke going to school. Right. And so I transferred to the University of Alabama and uh, had some family there to begin with. My brother was actually Big Al, the, the costumed character for the university. And uh, you got a bachelor's degree from Alabama. I did. In, in healthcare administration. In healthcare administration, undergrad yeah. degree. Right. It was the only business degree I could do that recognized all the natural sciences I'd already done. So people asked me Excellent. thinking I had this grand plan. 
And I'm like, it was the fastest way to get a business degree and not lose credit for all the, the natural sciences, the anatomy, physiology, chemistry. So pretty happy that it worked out that way. Fantastic. Well, I want to share with you those three beautiful words shared by Alabama fans all around the world. Roll Tide. Yeah. And it's said with some regularity in my house. Yeah, beautiful place. Fantastic. We loved it. So you graduated undergrad and then you decided to go to grad school. And was that where you learned your, you got your MBA? It is, but I had a little time in between. Okay. Uh, after undergrad, I actually went and worked in healthcare for about two years and decided to go back to graduate school and, and then to get the MBA as well as a master's in healthcare administration as well. Wow. And that was University of Alabama, Birmingham. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. Gotcha. So you spent many years and then you got fellowship certified as a fellow of the American College of Hospital Executives. Did I say uh, that healthcare, right? Healthcare executives. Healthcare executives. Yeah. So you're fully certified by them. And just like me, I assume you have to do continuing education credits. It never stops, right? We do. We, it, it's Actually, it's one of the things I look forward to. Uh, you take a break from the normal things. And you say, hey, am I doing things right? Are there things I can learn? Let's go spend some time with your peers. Uh, but we're required to get about 36 hours uh, every three years and continue education to maintain that designation. And the program you went to in Alabama required actual hands-on clinical time, right? It did. Uh, one of the reasons I was attracted to it, well, number one, it was a top five school in the country and currently is ranked number one for healthcare administration. And so wow. it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing I think that distinguishes them is that they're a very big proponent of giving the students an opportunity to go out and actually practice what they've learned. Um, it's not a piece of paper you hang on the wall. It's a foundation that you can use to go learn how to deploy it. And uh, because they had the nine to 12 month residency, depending on, on which track you took um, coming out of school, it was a big deal to me. I was like, well, this makes more sense because I want to actually know what I'm doing and not just have this foundation that then you begin anew once you're done. So it was a lot of fun for me. Went from uh, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, went to graduate school in Birmingham and then ended up in Houston was there about nine years and then ended up out in Albuquerque, New Mexico for 13. I know you were a hospital administrator in, in uh, New Mexico before you came here, before they found you. Well, Troy, today I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. Why is healthcare so darn expensive in the United States? It does cost a lot of money. It costs a lot of money. Am, am I right? The number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is healthcare bills. I don't know that. I have uh, heard that, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, we certainly have a very, a, a very, uh, I would call it a casual response to the fact that people walk in every day and they have high deductibles, high co-pays, and the first thing that they're afraid of is we're going to tell them they can't get their procedure. We oftentimes end up doing it anyway because we know they're not going to have those resources. So it certainly mm -hmm. is a big risk. Yeah, yeah. We all know about this about a. A, a good, hardworking guy pays his taxes, raises his kids. He's out shoveling the snow, gets a heart attack. Next thing he knows, he wakes up in an intensive care unit. He's been life flighted, and he gets a bill for half a million dollars that he can't pay. And it's just a nightmare scenario. Um, and we could go on. We could spend you know all day talking about um, about these incidents. Um, so I've done some preparation for our, our, our chat today. Mm -hmm. I want to share that I read a couple good books. One is called An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's a, um, an executive, I believe, at um, um, 
on the, in with Kaiser out on the in L.A. area, Coast, I believe. Yeah. This is a nice book. It's helped me. It looks at all aspects of, of healthcare and uses a lot of vignettes of <laughs> very you know disasters about why things about how things have been so expensive. And I also read a book on on big pharma and why it costs so much. There's so much uh, expense involved there, and it's called Sickening by a gentleman named John Abramson. Two good books that uh, I found valuable. Now, Troy, in my preparation with you, I went to Google, yep. and I got some help kind of partitioning the costs of healthcare in the United States. And some of these were from a few years ago, but these give us a pretty good idea of where the ballpark costs are. Apparently, in 2020, the United States spent $4.1 trillion on health care. If you look at those total dollars, about 31% was to hospitals, 26% to doctors, nurses, and allied care providers, about 8% to pharma for uh, Prescriptions not given in hospitals, but the prescriptions you see advertised on TV and whatnot. About 8% of the total cost went to the administrative costs for healthcare insurance. That's the premiums in, the, the, the services, the payouts, and then that's the difference. That's what they collect uh, for themselves as profits and whatnot. And then 5% for nursing homes. And then there's a whole other category here. I call these the piggies at the table. They get to uh, belly up to the table and get first uh, uh, bite at the trough. Uh, they all have uh, professional lobbies and whatnot. And they're the heavy hitters, and they get to eat first. I also notice that there's another little piggy come to the uh, trough now. It's called the electronic medical records. And there's not much data on how much they cost. And I hope to talk about them a little bit today as well. Um, I also beg your forgiveness. I want you to all to forgive me for any cursing, steam coming out of my ears, or if my face turns red, if I t get irate, because I, I get very, very angry uh, when I hear about the abuses of the system and how people are taking advantage of it, in my opinion. As I said earlier, I can't think of a better person who's more knowledgeable about the healthcare industry than you to help us, to help me understand where these costs go, why are they so, and why are they so expensive? And sure. maybe at the end of our talk, we can talk maybe where can we go from here, sure. and where can we maybe start seeing as a society improvements in efficiencies and cost reductions, for example. Yeah. So why don't we start talking about big pharma? Okay. I'd like to talk about big pharma first. I have some experience consulting in the pharma industry. It was a side hustle for a while. And pharma likes to portray itself as the giver of these life-saving medicines and whatnot. And on one level, they are. But what is clearly true is these are, these are public companies owned by shareholders. And not, their obligation is not to you and me with a fancy drug. It's to put out a product that makes a profit. Um, drugs are, are given a... Patent exclusivity, I think it's 17 years, 20 years, 17 years, I forget exactly what it was. And pharma companies say, look, it's taken us, you know, four, five, ten years to develop this drug, so we need exclusivity for a while so we can at least make our money back, right? But what do they do? 
they reformulate it, they put it in a different release package, they get hundreds of new patents, they make it, uh, they go to the orange book for pediatric indications and whatnot, and they extend these patents beyond what you would, ex would hope that they would be fair. They squash generic uh, competition. And something that would be generic, they just make it, it's no longer available, and you have to use their, their patent-protected, incredibly expensive drug. And instead of having drug costs go down with time, they only seem to go up. So what are your thoughts? That the pharma is actually just another big business. That if you look at how much money they, and I'll continue here, they put in so, so much money to produce a drug, to, to do the research and development, but they spend just as much on advertising, mm -hmm. and the money they spend for advertising dwarfs what else they do, such as stock buybacks and all these things to raise their stock money. So, in fact, what they invest in R&D is only a very tiny fraction of their total cost of business or doing business. So, yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> um, we're, we're grateful for those medications, your provider. Absolutely. They have a huge Im importance in, in terms of not only when you're sick, but also now preventing certain kinds of illnesses, which when we get to the expense side, I think there's huge pharmaceutical opportunities to help lower the cost of care, which we've seen with things in the cardiac realm, right? We, we've seen the ability to prevent significant illness by getting involved early and, and lowering certain things like cholesterol and those kinds of things. There's, there's a whole thing about cholesterol, too. It's overrated, but it's a good example. It, it's, it's, it's an example good. of the fact that if we look now, um, when I first came into the industry, and, and this is my 28th year, I just turned 51, it's my 28th year being involved in leadership in a healthcare environment. Um, we were expecting this huge crush of, of the the baby boomers to like hit hospitals all of a sudden. Mm. It's never materialized yet. And, and the interesting thing is because people are staying healthier longer for a lot of different reasons, right? There's a lot better education, um, but there's pockets where that's not true. I mean, there's pockets of our sure. population. Well, what role does, was, does this involve you know, the pharmacy side of things? Um, I, I wanna make sure that we're careful about what really is the driver of some of these expenses. The idea of R&D, you and I are both huge advocates for that because it's in that research and development that we can find solutions to challenges. Right. Um, we're seeing amazing tools that are coming out of, of, of genomics and, and what we do around the idea of how do you start attacking uniquely using someone's own body to fight cancers. And those are beautiful things. And I had a whole podcast coming with one of our can oncologists here at Boone Hospital about the latest amazing advances in these types of therapeutics. It is amazing. So we're going to talk about those in well, future and, you know, editions. I'm super interested in that. My, my mom, unfortunately, just had her second week of infusion. She was diagnosed with cancer not too long ago. And one of the ideas that we were able to look at was, well, hey, do we have the opportunity to do some, you know, cutting-edge technology to treat this? In her case, the good news, it wasn't necessary. Uh, it looks like a straightforward care plan. Um, we don't want to discourage those things, but then the, the thing that I always look to is how do you have huge differentials in pricing between countries? That, that, that's my right, frustration. Right. I don't want to talk about that because right. really there's like, let's look at insulin right now, right? right. I think Banting had founded and invented and got the patent for it. He virtually gave it away because he had, he had a soul, you know what I mean? Right. He cared about humanity. He wanted to share his discovery with the rest of us. And it seems like the attitude right now is completely the opposite. They want to maximize profits here. You know, and, and 
we definitely want an incentive for people to say, hey, I, I want to be able to, to build products that are, that are needed, that have a market. We're all in favor of those things, and I don't necessarily begrudge people for doing well financially for creativity. The uh, question, absolutely. The question is really one of, of magnitude. Because here's the interesting thing. We start looking at our donut over here, and, and I will admit I am biased to health systems. I'm, it's not just the hospital. We have outpatient and I'm biased to physicians. We'll talk about that. And you should that. be. That's right. <laughs> and I, I would expect that. But a lot of those expenses wind up getting getting kind of hidden in other expenses, right? For me, one of my largest expenses is the pharmaceutical component. And what's passed on to me, my institution does not qualify for what's now commonly known as 340B pricing. Uh, so I, I don't get the discounts that a lot of other health systems, even though we are a not-for-profit organization, um, we don't get those kind of discounts. But a lot of my, my peers do, and I'm thankful that they do qualify bigger for bigger hospitals. Uh, it's not the size. It's 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 really the amount of, of Medicaid and some disproportionate share that they may experience because they serve a little bit of, of, of a less well-off population. Here in Columbia, we do have uh, a significant number of our, our community that needs that extra support. It's just not as overwhelmingly large as some other in, uh, communities. And so I don't qualify for that. If we did, it would actually save my organization somewhere in the neighborhood of close to $7 million, right. to put that into perspective. So that becomes additive, right? right? All these different elements come in, whether it's supplies, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's labor, it adds on to that experience. And none of us want really, really cheap healthcare, right? We, we, we want to make sure- Please, I would be happy, Troy, with reasonable. That's right, that's right. I we want to make sure that we have the best possible providers that we can have, that we want nurses trained to a level that they're very good at what they do. We want drugs that are highly uh, effective in treating the illnesses that they've been designated for. You know, for me, and, and I know we'll spend a little bit more time as we get further on about a couple topics, um, to me, it's the elimination of waste. And then when we eliminate that waste, more importantly than eliminating the waste, where does it go? Where do we take those savings and who does it inure to? Um, I would like to see those waste, and at least in my organization's view of the world, is when we achieve savings, we want to share that with the organization so we can reinvest in healthcare and improve the health of the people that we're responsible for taking care of but also making sure that, that we're not aggressive on our pricing. I mean, it, it is incredibly expensive. Um, we recently replaced a piece of equipment that was uh, almost two and a half million dollars. It's right. a very expensive piece of equipment. We had to pay for that over time. I understand those moments, but what can I do? What can we do collectively to start taking some of those savings opportunities and pull it out of the system so it doesn't affect, because here's the thing, right. the number one predictor of a patient's health and well-being is the economic status of the community that they grew up in. If you do a regression analysis right. on, on the predictors of health and, and, and well-being, more often than not, it is going to be the economic status that determines that. Zip code. Absolutely. It, right. It's how healthy you're going to be. You can almost predict that by zip code. Well, if that's the case, my institution, because of our mission, has a responsibility to be as focused on, on this piece of the well-being, which is the economic piece, so we do a lot of things about that. We try to keep our costs low. We try to keep our charges low. We also want to make sure that we're not doing unnecessary things. So the question comes back to when we start looking at pharma and, and what we use in that, how effective are those medications? Do they really prevent certain right. things? I mean, so, you know, like you mentioned, taking one drug, we have right. drugs that work in multiple different areas, but they're not FDA approved because we have to recognize that there is this process of getting things approved for certain uses. 
that even though physicians all around the country know that it's, it's this quote-unquote off-label medication, right, for an yeah, off-label use. there's a lot of old drugs, Troy. Still work great. That's so, but you can't get them. There's not much profit in them. That's and right. They have stopped making them, Troy. So I'm going to bring this back, back more to pharma again here. Um, there's no transparency. There's no the, – the normal – supply and demand and competitive nature of capitalism that should bring prices down is not working in pharma. Would the, the Congress has not allowed negotiation you know, for cost savings and, and economies of scale directly from the government. And since we have monopolies for these drugs and we don't know how much things cost because the user is separated from the bill, that these normal pressures are gone to bring prices down, and they only go up. Am, am, am I missing something? No, the idea of the informed consumer, right? If you and I go to the grocery store and we pick up an item, and these days we certainly should be looking at the prices of those items because we've seen a pretty dramatic escalation. But the, but, the grocery grocery store is just double. It's just double. Right, right. It's just double. And, you know, I, I laugh when you know going out to dinner. It's a, just double. A year ago, it was like, okay, I need to buy a two by four. Let me take out a loan. I need to get two by four for something, but that's come back down. So there, there are drivers that can fix it, but an informed consumer is one of the best tools we have to start lowering costs in all facets of healthcare. It's called skin in the game. Absolutely. But, but when you have health insurance and you, and you see a hot year, the insurer says, well, it's covered or whatnot. The, ins- the pharma company can jack this price up to astronomical levels and it seems to get paid in, in many, many cases. Right. How can how can we get competition back into this space to bring costs down? Um, you know, I'm at a loss. It's funny because I'm certainly not an expert on, on the pharma side of things. Yeah. I, I have had great partnerships with our distributors and for the things that we use inside of a, a healthcare system. Um, but we want the innovation. But I think through the transparency of understanding, what am I really spending? Um, you and I both know, like, one of the areas I have to do for controlling cost is even asking the question of certain providers. They get upset with me because they think it's, oh, I'm, I'm being cheap on something. Well, no. I, the, the one it's called secret, haggling. They've been doing it for 20,000 years. Absolutely. But there's this other side of it, too, and, and that is that people don't realize, especially on the hospital side, we're kind of paid a fixed fee for a diagnosis, so when I start saying, hey, this is all I get to take care of this patient, I have to be sensitive to the fact that those costs can't go up. And, and so knowing when I go, it's amazing when I just share a doctor, hey, this is how much you cost for the same diagnosis versus one of your peers costing me this. And it's amazing. They're scientists by nature. They have a curiosity. They'll look at that. And sometimes they'll, they'll tell you that, well, I don't know that I believe the data, this, that, and the other. But ironically, over time, they tend to come back to those other numbers. And so sharing information, that transparency you referenced, I think it gives us the ability to, to have an impact on the things that, that we are uh, using inside of our institutions, using in our practices, making smart decisions about what we're going to keep on the shelf. And in our world, we have P&T committees, you know, pharmaceuticals, therapeutics, they make decisions all right. the time on what are we going to have on the shelf? What does it cost? Do we use this drug? Do we use this drug? And, and sometimes people may have a, a particular preference, but we have a group of, of pharmacists and physicians who actually look at medications and say, hey, this is just as, as effective as this drug, but it's 13 cents cheaper per dose. So, so let's there's use a that. little leverage on the hospital side. 
A little bit. Now, for, for retail, you hit on something that I think is very important. Um, you know, when you start to think about uh, certain segments of, of the American population, um, increasingly there's a, a small percentage that have no resources whatsoever for health care, although right. it's, it's pretty reduced. Yeah. Um, then you have Medicaid, who right. th- those users normally are not faced with any significant out-of-pockets when, when they go to receive care for, for social reasons that, that we probably do understand. Then you have Medicare, which seems to be a, a big focus on this for, for a lot of different reasons. When the federal government decided to step in as a payer, um, we wound up with a system that's very large with lots of dollars in it, lots of opportunities for exploitation. But only 3% overhead. We're going to get to that in a second. So, but, but, but again, those people that do it do have co-pays and out-of-pocket. And then you have the commercially insured individual who oftentimes is facing thousands of dollars for, for their care before they ever get somebody else to kind of kick in if they have a high yeah. deductible plan. But that doesn't allow them to choose their medicine or compare them or, or choose a cheaper alternative. They're out of the capitalistic framework, which allows which, which brings prices down. Right. The common sense we use about shopping, right? Um, right. You, you, you might have, my dad right. used to joke with me, hey, son, you really do have champagne taste on a beer budget. Right. I mean, it's one of the things he would tell me, and it's like understanding you know that. you're buying the champagne. That's right. They're not only, like in pharma, they're only giving you the champagne. Because that's where they can mar- mark it up. I, especially with the new biologicals. I mean, there, there's nothing yeah. to compare it to. Well, um, and in some cases, they, they truly are. And you mentioned this early, and I, I think I do have at least a warm spot about the idea of when you spend a lot of time on R&D and you bring a new product to the market, there certainly is an idea that you got to have enough there to justify the investment that you've made. I understand that. Um, and, and you start mentioning biologic and, and you know, now using your own immune system to attack something uh, through genetic modification. It's Those are be- great, but they're expensive. But, but it's a distraction, Troy, because they're filling their pipelines by buying small companies. They let the small companies do that, work it out, take the risk. And then when there's a product where someone else has taken the risk, they swoop in, buy it, put it in their pipeline, in their portfolio, and treat it like anything else. It could be coal. It could be perfume. It could be any commodity or, or any, you know, it could be widgets from China. And then they treat it like any other company. And they, they are as ruthless as anybody. And, and the, these, altru- the, these, these dreams that these are just altruistic companies doing this for the, for the common good is, is a fiction. Is a fiction, and I think they because once again I said the, the amount of money they spend on R and D and acquisition of companies is is minuscule compared to the other costs and and the, these obscene uh, CEO uh, salaries and all the and all the money they siphon out of the system. Um, now I'm not a proponent of, of big government. I think government's the problem usually, and I'm not saying the government should go in and, and change things. Other than to make the, the the landscape competitive, so that these people have to earn these monies and not and not just skim it off the top because they're isolated from competitive pressures and and free market yeah. capitalism. It's interesting. You and I probably remember a day, even though a lot of your audience doesn't, when banking was regulated state by state, and you couldn't have interstate banks. Ah. I, you know, I, I moved from one state to another early in my career, and I realized that I can't keep the same bank account because I've got to have a different relationship. Now, I, I don't have a local relationship with a bank because that's been deregulated and, and created additional competition for it. Um, 
you know, I, I think that everything we're talking about is going to have to be multifactorial to kind of solve the problem, right? Sure. You're going to have to have an informed consumer who understands, hey, am I really on the hook? There is no such thing as free anything in the healthcare environment. Uh, oh, well, somebody else is paying for it. Well, ultimately, you pay, pay for that. Sure we you know, and, and the best example I can use and is probably from other industries, right? If the price of oil goes up, we know what's going to happen at the gas pump. Um, but we seem to suspend that reality when it comes to the idea of, of healthcare inflation or, or healthcare costs, right? It, yeah. It, yeah, you have these medicines, the price of them seems to never go down. Right. You could walk away from the pharma component of this and say, well, look at the last three years. I mean, the, the idea of, um, I'll use the word exploitation during yeah, the pandemic. You can use it. I mean, we, we saw lots of activity that was very similar to that. I mean, we were having auctions in our back office acquisition areas of our healthcare institutions to try to find something as simple as mask, gloves, because for a period of time, you they were in short this. demand. That's right. And, and we have a very short memory. That's one of my frustrations yeah, about yeah. looking back is, uh, you know, in the early days, February of 2020, right? March mm, of 2020. Right, we we March. shut down our elective services, even though those were still people who needed health care. We shut down those things uh, and we forgot why. The biggest reason was we did not have the PPE coming into the country to allow us to continue to do those procedures and we were saving them for those true emergencies. So this disruption, we, we forget about that. Well, in the meantime, people are calling us and, and, and gloves that used to cost 70 cents a box are now 750 a box. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I laugh because having spent some time in Florida, um, during the middle of a hurricane evacuation, if you crack, you know, if you crank up on the, the price of your gas during an evacuation, it's a criminal offense. Right. And yet it happened there in healthcare and people just think, what's well, going to be passed on? I'm not responsible for those costs. I have insurance that covers it. The, the informed consumer is going to have to play a role in us getting our arms wrapped around this with pharma, uh, but the other things we're going to talk about later, too. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know if there's anything we can do about pharma, uh, but I think competition needs to come in. I, I think it needs to have some special... Uh, it needs to be treated somewhat differently than any other just run-of-the-mill company like Apple selling phones. These right. are not phones. These are pharmaceuticals that save people's lives. I would love to see some more competition, and, and I don't know if there's much we can do about it, but at least I wanted to touch on this you subject. Know, I, I think about it. Just stop for a moment and, and think about some of the solutions that have been proposed or even ideas that have been tried. Help me. I'd love to. So, so think about the idea, well, just in terms of does this make any sense whatsoever? People can cross the border. You're in Michigan. You're in Michigander, yeah, right? Go to Windsor. They, they can go up to Windsor, go over to beautiful Ontario, Providence, right? Walk across to Tijuana. That's right. And, and so yeah. just think about the logistics of this. I, I can leave my country, pick something up, bring it back in at a more cost-effective price than just going to my corner store and, and getting it from uh, a local it's pharmacy. It's ridiculous. Right. It's so, ridiculous. You know, from, from our perspective within the healthcare system, which obviously is what I know most about, um, we have a fixed reimbursement. So we fight vigorously to try to get these prices as, as economically as we can to be able to, to keep it under that, that threshold. Um, and I've got a, a really cool team that they evaluate every drug that comes into the building. And, and then we share that with the medical staff and we, we tell them what's short and what's in short supply and what's an alternative for that, what's a substitute for it. Right. 
that level of commitment to saying, is this the right use of resources is needed throughout the entire system. Right. You know, the one thing that I, I will acknowledge is, is I have been blessed to have been around fabulous physicians for, for my career. I mean, brilliant guys and, 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 and women who are just uh, dedicated to patient care. That's who I get my, my script from. I, I've never quite understood what, what are these ads really for? Right. Right. I need a script to get that. Do they want me to go in and advocate for this particular drug with my doctor? Right. Because, right. you know, we, we put a lot of faith in that white coat. We put we a do. lot of faith in that white coat. And uh, I'm never going to ask for medication unless my doctor says, I think this is something that you would benefit. And I'm going to often ask, tell me how. How am I going to benefit? How does that well, work? Those ads are so that you go in and ask for them. Right. But it's funny. I, I've never felt inclined to do that over those ads. But, but you can you watch – you can watch any sporting event. You can watch any major event, and, and they're going to be there advertising. And you know, I, I, again, you and I both are proponents. You can't be a proponent of capitalism and not understand that that driver of making an investment, expecting a return. The question is always for me of magnitude. Right. Um, and, and again, I, I don't want to regulate it, but competition has a way of regulating those things pretty well. Right. It. It. it, it and we don't have that right now. We don't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave pharma. Okay. And I want to talk about the health insurance industry. Very good. All right. Here we have an industry that's taking in about $1.1 trillion here in the United States. It's over $2 trillion nationally. They churn this money. They pay all these people to administer all this money. These executives make exorbitant salaries. And then they give the money back, and they add absolutely zero value. Yet this little piggy at the trough right now used to get over a used to collect almost a quarter of that money for themselves. Now I'm not a big fan of Obamacare. It has some good things. It has some bad things. I agree. Um, they meant well. I know. That, I'm sure they meant well. Okay, we could say that about a lot of things in healthcare. A lot right. of people have meant well. They meant well. And apparently now it's down to 80-20. They can't keep more than I could be wrong. Maybe you know. I think it's 80-20. They, they can't keep more than 20% of the money or 15% of the money, yeah, what, whatever yeah. the law. It's something 18, 15, 20%. And they actually have to give the money back if they don't keep it. But they're still making 15%. These, these executives are making tens of millions of dollars of salary. But <clears throat> I consider blood money, okay, by, by taking in money and then denying care. Providing absolutely no value. So there, there's, there's. I've drawn that line in the sand. I, I think it's pretty disgusting. What are your thoughts about uh, healthcare insurance in the United States? So you mentioned earlier, like medical loss ratio. That's what you were kind medical of referencing. Loss ratio, yeah. correct. So I have been fortunate in my career to have had multiple levels of, of insured products. Um, whether we had our own insurance plan associated with our system. Uh, whether we just took risk to manage the, the, the lives and, and through PHOs, which were the first alphabet soup before ACOs, right. you know, those kinds of things. So I, I do have a little bit of knowledge about how they work. And, and when they work well, they're, they're a hugely important aspect of how we deliver care because you know, really all insurance is is this expected loss over a large population over some period of time. But the problem is, is we can't live our lives that way as individuals because I can't take that big loss at the moment of time it might happen. Over my entire lifetime, I might be able to. Right. But if I'm diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, let's hope that doesn't happen. I know I'm going to be incurring some significant bills. So we try to share that with others in terms of oh, risk. That, that's, the whole, that's the whole idea of insurance to begin with. But Correct. why should health insurance be much different from car insurance? Health in, Car insurance doesn't pay for your oil change. Right. Right. 
if you care about your car, you're going to maintain it, right? So what I wanted to reference though is we, we see the value in, in, in what it can do, right? So then the question is, as you mentioned this earlier, and you know, I'm a big proponent of what is the value added activity? Right. What is right. the value added activity? Because that's really yeah. what you should be paying for. Is, right. Is, what is I, I see almost no value add for these health insurance companies taking 15, 20 percent of the money. When, when, in fact, the government sponsored care, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever it is, it takes three percent. Well, but in addition to that, but, but now there's this whole new arena in that insured environment, which is the managed Medicare, the managed Medicaid, which is now taking some of those same and, and allegedly the, the innovative side of being a plan and, and actually saying, well, how are we going to um, use our expertise to take care of the Medicare population? Here's where I want the question asked. Um, and and you, you, I'll have some summary kind of thoughts on this at some point, but I feel very strongly that there's so many activities inside of this relationship. It's a relationship. It's, it's sure. a, maybe a tactical one, but it's still a relationship. Okay. There are so many opportunities we have to quit wasting resources. I'll give you an example. So insurance companies stand up this very, very large infrastructure to try to make sure that, that people are not abusing uh, the ability to, to consume resources, right? Whether it's sure. outpatient imaging, reproductive therapy, you know, those, those kinds gonna, of They're going to play that up and say that's the value they add. Correct. Right, so right. so they're, they're there's this idea of waste. They're down unnecessary procedures. But, okay. but you and I both know, well, wait a minute, the scales of balance, it's like, well, how much do you spend to prevent that versus what was really occurring to begin with? Right. I would argue that the, the vast super, super, super majority of any provider I've ever been around is focused on doing the right thing. They don't set out today to go, you know what, I think I will defraud the government. Do some people do that? It happens. I, I, I've never seen it. I, I sure haven't either. I've never seen I, it. I haven't either. And in my experience, 28 years, very large systems. Um, but here's my question. Well, why don't we come together and say, look, you have a responsibility to, to your audience, which is oftentimes employers, right? Because that's who insurance companies really sure. ultimately work for because they represent the employee. Right. But normally that benefit comes through employers. And so they are providing, should be providing that value to them. But on the backside, pardon me, the backside, what they wind up doing is they build this superstructure to say yes or to say no. Oftentimes they say no in ways that, that are irrational. I'm completely irrational. Well, so now what is our reaction as providers? You have people in your office that have to make phone call after phone call after phone call. Oh, I have a woman and dedicated to it. Absolutely. Full-time equivalent. And, and I, I've got probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, of I don't know. I guess between 12 and 16% of my total expenses are probably attributed to the idea of billing, collecting, negotiating, all those other factors that come with them. And then at the end of the day, I really don't have the rules of engagement. Right. They seem to hold all the cards. They, they do. And here's my frustration. They built this superstructure, so now I've got to build it too. We've yet to take care of a patient in that relationship. Right. No value add. I'm spending dollars. They're spending dollars. Tell me the rules by which you want me to behave and let us behave by those rules and let's take the savings and actually use that to lower the cost of care. That's, that's the way I see that relationship. And unfortunately, the, the conversation winds up being very kind of short-sighted. And I'll give you one other thing that's very interesting to me. Um, you and I both recognize that are there, can, can you completely eliminate the need for higher cost of care? Probably not. You're still going to have people that through heredity, through whatever, wind up with sure. serious illness, right? Um, but here's my question. 
do insurance companies really have a significant incentive to create wellness? And no, no. And I'll give you I'll give you a real world example. If I have somebody with a terrible obesity problem, they've been struggling for years, they need a bariatric surgery. If the health insurance companies really cared about these people, they would say, sure, because you think, hey, saving you all these eventual costs or diabetes and whatnot. These healthcare executives have made the decision that you're either going to die or go to a different company before they have those expenses. They've actually figured this out. So they'll deny this, this life-giving procedure to these people because they don't, they don't give a rat's ass about them. They just care about the bottom line, Troy. Well, for you know, the the way I, I see that relationship, so bariatrics for most is a covered service, right? Uh, not, not my patients. For, for, for well, and we have we have a program for that, and a lot of people do have coverage for it. But but here's my frustration: some of those hoops that we jump through create a lot of cost that don't get us any closer to taking care of the patient. Because the interesting right. thing about bariatrics, and and this is maybe a little bit off topic, but sure. people give far too much credit to the surgery itself. And what I would argue is that the preparatory phase. It's a program. Absolutely. These it's are a professionals. Being They're good. not reinventing the wheel. Right. You know why? You go into the seminar, you get evaluated by the nurse, you get triaged. They say, hey, you're a candidate for the surgery. That should be enough. But no, right. then you got to go to the insurance company and they're going to deny, deny, deny. Right. Well, and then in my world, you'd be surprised at how often we get to the point of sending out a bill and getting a notice back from the insurance companies that, wait, wait, wait. You pre-auth this. You gave me an authorization right. number, but now they're denying deny. it. They'll still deny and, and, and so, and here's the interesting thing. He's pricks. So then we appeal. Right? God, I get angry. Excuse <laughs> we, me, Troy. We we appeal and we go through that process. And and when the appellate process is done, more often than not, we wind up finding an amicable solution that hey, you know what, this really was needed. But the problem I have is I just spent significant resources chasing down oh, this, and, and and this is what really scares me. There are organizations that are smaller. There are organizations who can't afford the level of, of dedicated resources that we have to chase some of these things down. And I think, so there's this idea of, well, let's just see if they can find it. You know, let's short, short pay this or, or not pay for this service. There are some organizations that don't have the ability to question that and go back and say, no, this is really what happened. And, and then you become an easy mark. It's, it's like the idea in the medical profession of, do you defend yourself when, when you're sued? Well, if you don't do it, most plaintiffs' attorneys now realize that, well, you're not going to yeah. defend yourself, so here they come. Open season. That's right. And so what I have to do is I fight for every one of those circumstances because simply I don't want them to think that, hey, through adjudication, through decision-making, I just think – imagine – but think about this conversation we're having right now. Right. It is wasted conversation as it relates to delivering actual patient care. Right. And what I'm hoping for is that we can enter a new phase. And what I'm working for, really specifically to my organization, I want to have a different relationship with payers. I do think that they have a value that is provided. The problem is I think it's getting lost in a lot of these wasted resources. And I'll, I'll share a story with you if you don't mind. Please. I won't name the payer. Please. Recently, my, my chief medical officer, my chief financial officer wrote a, a very well uh, laid out letter with some concerns that they had for a particular payer. Uh, we had nine examples of a circumstance where this particular payer uses a third party to authorize the care to be delivered across the care continuum. So these patients no longer qualify to be in, a, in a, an acute care facility like my hospital, okay. but maybe they need to be in a SNF. Maybe they need to be in a rehab facility. What's a SNF? 
uh, skilled nursing facility. Thank you. And, and so uh, that or a, a rehab facility where they, obviously offer, they offer a lot of physical therapy, occupational therapy. Um, and, and some of the examples that we had, they were actual amputees, people who had to, to lose a, a lower leg, a lower limb. Mm. And we say, hey, the best place for this patient is to go get physical therapy. So they can go home safely and return to their home, which is what they want to do. You no, know, you're not ripping anybody off. This is an honest, professional assessment. It was this denied. This amputee, amputee deserves this, and they're denied. Right. They were denied. But here's the more important thing to me. They're denied. Huge problem. We appeal. And in all the examples we gave, we spent, uh, on average, about two weeks fighting this. And when we finally got to the pair themselves, not the third party that was making these decisions on the front end, we were 100% successful. Wow, 100%. 100% successful. But look, I had to take time away from physicians. I had to take time away from nurses, from care managers, from physical therapists to say this patient needs this care. The family's frustrated with all sides and feel abandoned. Everyone's frustrated. Right. And they earned interest on that money for two more weeks. Well, but and to me, it's like if we're going to get to that at the end of the process, let's not waste two weeks in the meantime and, and, and come to do it and, and come back to the idea. I, right. I copied the hospital association on that here in, in, in Missouri. We're in, we're in Missouri. Your audience is nationwide, obviously. Sure. Um, I, I copied them on that. I, I didn't know when I did that that it might fall in the hands of the American Hospital Association. Um, it, it did. And then before I know it, I get a phone call from that particular insurance company and they want to have a, a conference call with me. Now you have some leverage because they look terrible. It, it, well, and, and They're it, finally, you finally exposed uh, the, this, the, this horrendous uh, pattern. In, in fairness, once they found out, they were like, hey, we apologize. Let's have a conversation. The right people get in there. Here's the question. Why do we get to that point? Let's be proactive in this relationship and say, rather than this being a situation like this, um, let's actually say, tell me the rules at which my providers, my physicians, my nurse practitioners, mm -hmm. my advanced practice individuals, tell me the rules by which they have to practice in their office. Tell me the rules we have to do in our hospital. We have standards I, of practice we in do. everything. We do. I, I can tell you, you and I both Best know Best practices in everything. We do, and, and I've never seen an environment like a hospital to see professionals come together and bash each other. <laughs> they come together and they'll, they'll say, is this the right medicine you should have used, and this, that, and the other. And it's not done in a hateful way. It's done around clinical evidence. It's done around proving that this is necessary. Well, give me the proof ahead of time. Let me use my systems instead of saying what we won't do or, or wasting resources for two weeks or fighting that. Let me put that money to care. Let me say, hey, we can do some things to make it easier for this family to transition over to this rehab facility. And, and to me, you, you said this before. You've heard me mention it before. Value-added activity is not something that should be frowned upon. Non-value activity is All something. For it. Yeah, we cannot afford non-value-added activity in healthcare. We gotta get rid of it. We do. And I see these guys as as blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> I won't go that far, but right, blood-sucking parasites. Um, the, the 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 salaries these administrators get is just these executives get are just just utterly disgusting. And now I don't know what it will take <clears throat> to make health insurance for the catastrophic incident or the the, the people that are going to have high costs. Unfortunate people, genetic diseases, accidents, what have you, mm -hmm. and have the rest of us have all the skin in the game, a health savings account where we use our money just like we use it to take care of our cars, take care of our houses, where we have it's our money. We can shop around looking for the best prices 
and bring competition and true capitalism into this market rather than paying for health insurance and expecting it to pay for everything. So let, let's kind of create some subsets of the marketplace. Yeah, help me. I don't understand. Okay. Why can't this happen other than large insurance companies I, being greedy with, with well-paid lobbyists to prevent Congress from making any of these changes? I think we could be on the precipice of some significant transformation, but I'd like to kind of set the stage if you're okay with Please, it. Please, give me hope. So, I'm disgusted. So, so think about the uninsured population. No insurance whatsoever. They don't okay. qualify for anything. I don't think that they have the, the, the wherewithal to, to muster the resources and the power to try to affect significant change, and it's our responsibility to care for them. And they're paying two to three times for their health care what a regular person with insurance is. They don't and, even get the discounts. Which, but, but think about it. Who should get the discounts? Should be the poor people. Right, and, and then at the end of the day, why why we even bother billing that subset of the population? They don't what have the resources. The I know. It's, right. it's disgusting. Okay. So you've got that population that's probably not going to significantly be able to affect change. We have to advocate for them and defend them. Um, we then have the population of Medicare, and, and candidly, this, this is probably where I offer more conjecture and, and opinion. I don't know that the government's ever been the innovative spirit behind significant and dramatic change. So you'll probably get what I would call incremental changes. They've done some innovative things. Bundled care payment models were introduced about 10 to 12 years ago, and, and we use those for a period of time, and we learn some things from them. Uh, they've kind of turned that innovation over to the, the private sector through managed Medicare. But again, I don't know that you're going to see these huge upswells of change attributed to that population. Where I'm starting to see a difference, and, and this is why I think there's huge opportunity, businesses are ultimately responsible for the cost attributed to their membership, right? Yeah, they have big enough pockets and big enough bulk buying power Correct. to have some influence in this situation. Correct. But but for so long, it was a foreign concept to them. I mean, as it, 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 uh, complex as healthcare is, which it certainly is a very, very complex business, um, and it's, it's complex to deliver. I mean, I love it. My favorite thing is I go to work every day in a place where somebody, these are people are just as important, a neurosurgeon and, and a dietary worker. Um, uh, a nurse and a physical therapist. Every role is important. We all, and it's just a really cool microcosm of the world coming together for the sake of patient care. I love that side of it. But you get to the business side of what we do, they couldn't understand it. But here's what's happening. I'm being engaged almost on a weekly basis. Come visit with us. Would you sit down with my CFO? Would you have a cup of coffee and just By tell business. us what business is inviting me in saying, what can we do? To better manage this, we're self-insured. Right. We pay for this. My organization is self-insured with reinsurance provisions because we could run into a couple of cases. You own a hospital. I should I mean, be self-insured. You should be self-insured. Absolutely. A beautiful hospital and, with all these resources. And, and, and a wonderful workforce that a lot of people, it's the envy of the industry in mid-Missouri. We love our team. But at the end of the day, my healthcare insurance is very expensive. We, we are like everybody else. When you have 1,800 people, you may have members of your team that, that develop you know, that develop cancer. You may have members of your team that are involved in an accident. And yeah. so understanding what that cost looks like is something that a lot of businesses have never asked. It's changing though. They're starting to ask questions about, well, what can we do? And so I would tell them, well, look for value. What is the price point for your care? Well, right now you got United or Blue Cross. I mean, what, what's, what's the choice? Well, but, but here's the interesting thing, but they're self-insured. There, there can be other methods and, and models that they come up with. They can also work with those individual payers to say, hey, 
what are you going to do for us? Well, I'm a small business. I employ 13, 14 That's going to be hard people. to do. And, and, and a I don't lot, have any weight. Right. A lot of the organizations that are reaching out and asking me are exactly what you're talking about. Let's say that 50 employees probably is where you transition into a, a bigger, bigger number, although it's still hard to price that because you can have a lot of variability in, in how many incidents of disease you face. You start getting into that 10 to 15 mom and pop kind of shop that are the backbone of most economies. Right. This terrifies them. I happen to be that. I, for a lot of reasons that I won't go into today, I own an electrical services company ah. in, in Texas through a long-term relationship. People are like, what do you know about electricity? I'm like, on, off, <laughs> on, off. Um, but we ran into this very problem. You know, we ran into this where we said we want to be something different. I, I happen to have a very close uh, director in my hospital. It was an electrician that was actually our director of engineering services. He wanted to start his own business. And we said, let's stand for something different. And, and so he said, well, then we have to offer our people health insurance. And so we went through that journey. And it is hard, very hard. He was fortunate he could turn to me, and I could turn to experts that know more about this than I do and say, how would you offer this? And so what we wound up doing was creating an, an insurance product that looks and acts like a, a large out-of-pocket plan. It's almost a reinsurance model, but we then funnel through appropriate mechanisms this pool of money that our workforce can use for their co-pays and deductibles if needed. If they don't use it, guess what happens to those proceeds? You keep it. They keep it. They keep it. Yeah, that's what we do. Right. We keep a portion of it, but we allow them the opportunity to say, hey, I need you to be engaged in making smart decisions. If you can go to a convenient care clinic, if you can see your primary care doctor instead of going to the ER. It's you called know, skin in the game. It is. Keeping your car maintained. If, if you love your car, you keep it you right. keep it oiled. Payers have a very important role to play. But increasingly, with more and more self-insured, I believe there are going to be different relationships and models uh, that can be pursued. And I'll, I'll share one example uh, of that. And that is right now, we have a series of direct contracts with employers in our community. Um, they wanted Boone. They see the quality scores. They see the price point. Is this this product came out about a year or two ago? One of our orthopedic friends came up with it. It's we, we have that as that. an option too, but that's a huge opportunity. The health cooperative is something that I think has huge potential for for small regional businesses. Um, but in that same vein, uh, those same orthopedic friends also directly contract with these people to say, "Hey, if you come directly to us for straightforward business." we can actually get our cost down even further for you. But we have to engage, ultimately, the end user, but oftentimes the end user is not who you think it is. Very rarely is it the patient, because very rarely do patients have their pure out-of-pocket attributed to it. So we have to work with businesses or the self-regulated business. I call them the price-sensitive consumer. Right. And then we have to get Medicare and engage them in ways that we think we can affect change in, in, in meaningful ways and get insurance to, to play their part. Um, but the most important thing I see in this whole discussion about insurance is please, let's all commit to getting rid of non-value-added activity. Um, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to believe that that's probably in the, in the teens of our total cost because I know what it means to my organization. Sure. I once had an opportunity when I was negotiating with a, a significant payer in another state, a very large multi-million population uh, service area. And um, he walked in and he joking, I, I knew the guy negotiating with me very well. And he walked in and said, ha ha ha, Troy, how much are you going to cut your rates for me this year? And I said, I'll cut them 8%. And he said, deal, let me sign right now. I said, but 
I'm out of the collection business. I said, I'm no longer in the collection business for you. I said, your patients are going to come to my hospital. If you promise me a dollar, you're going to pay me a dollar. You're not going to give me 80 cents and say, good luck collecting the other 20. And I said, I can stand down a lot of non-value added activity in the hospital. And he said, let me get back to you. And? Came back three days later and said, they can't do that. Can? Cannot. Cannot. They would not do it. Right. They there would you not go. do it. Now, in, in, in fairness to go. them, their systems had not been built to adjudicate that kind of a relationship. No, their systems are built to take money from us. So, I, but it, it was something that I had actually thought about. I had worked with our chief financial officers. Oh. And what they said to me was, Troy, our cost to collect is higher than that 8%. Right. At the time, this idea of, no, we're not going to pay you for it. Well, then let's appeal. Let's appeal. Let's appeal. Now we're going to pay you for it. Well, at the end of the day, both sides use resources there. Again, give us the ground rules, insurance companies, hold us accountable to live by those ground rules, and let's stop wasting money on these edifices that we have to build that are not really involved in delivering care. Okay. So there's what I'm hearing from you is there's going to be a little bit of nibbling at the edges. There's some pressure to bring it down. But the overall edifice and business model of uh, big healthcare insurance, I, I don't know if it's going to change much. And um, I, if it It's does, very discouraging. If it does, it's going to have to be through the price-sensitive consumer helping to transform it. Yeah. Um, the, the present model, it would be very hard unless they do it. Just because I, I don't know that uh, you're going to see innovation through those other pods of population that we've talked about. At least we're having an honest discussion here. I'm trying. Now, to another big piece of the pie is actually provides paying providers like doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and all of the all these people. And they're saying we make, we, we cost 26% or about a quarter of the healthcare dollar. I would argue we should be making as close to 100% as possible because <laughs> we're doing the, the work. Like Troy, talking about quality, right? Mm -hmm. People realize who doctors and, and, and high level nurses are. These are people who have trained their whole lives. They're the smart. I I I I don't think anybody's going to argue with me. These are some of the smartest people mm -hmm. we have. They're some of the hardest working people we have. They're the ones actually Dedicated. doing the work. Yeah, and they're big. And and we're not even allowed to unionize. We we are antitrust laws. People realize we cannot we cannot organize as a national union. Doctors, for example, because of antitrust laws. I don't quite understand them. But we can't even do collective bargaining. Um. So we're hamstrung there. Another prejudice, I'd say, is they, oh, all doctors are rich. They are not. They are not. A lot of doctors do not make much money. Another thing people don't understand, and I'm, I know I'm on a soapbox here, but I will take it. We lose money doing surgery right now. People think, oh, you're a surgeon. You're making all this money. We don't make our money from surgery. RVU production. The right, office. right. It's all the other stuff. People are. are, are not, not for all specialties, but for many. Yeah, they're creative for what, what they do in the office, other services they can provide to make their living, right? Like, for example, I treat a, a condition called endometriosis, one of mm -hmm. the many things I do. It's a very long, incredibly tedious, dangerous, difficult surgery that's taken me decades to do. I make, I, I, I make pennies. I, I lose money doing surgery. So, and I'm not complaining about me. I, I, I'm advocating for the women with endometriosis who can't get good surgery here in the United States because there's so well some, some do mm -hmm. many women with this condition cannot get the surgery because very few people 
provide it because there's just no incentive to do it. Right. Um, um, it's just, just horrible. So once again, I'm, I'm not going on a pity pot or anything. Most doctors are doing okay. Um, but the way thing, doctors and nurses are compensated, I, I don't quite understand. And another little thing they've done, they, they've, they've made us fight amongst each other. They'd say, there's a certain pool of money for surgeons. Now, you guys fight about your what are called your RVUs, your relative value units. So they make us fight each other rather than fight for the common good for, for proper uh, compensation so we can do the surgeries that will help people. Well, <clears throat> there's been this also this significant shift. If you were to ask me the biggest shift in my career, which almost closing my third decade doing it, it really is the nature of our relationship with our providers. When I first started, there was no such thing as employed physicians. There were state laws that prevented employing doctors yeah. in the state of Texas, where I spent some time. You had this; you had to have a specific tax designation to be able to actually, you know, they were anti-corporate practice of medicine. And, and so, but what's changed now is that when I look at where some of our major costs are, most of them are in supporting the medical group. Um, we have we we run into the situation where you're right. The time invested, the educational dollars that have been spent to get prepared uh, to be this this upper echelon, high quality provider. Who else do you want taking care of you? You want the best right? taking care I of mean, you. Come on, this is common and, sense. You know, I, and again, I joked earlier about the fact that we don't really want cheap healthcare, right? No, I mean, we want quality. We want high quality. We want quality. So if I had this, probably it may it may not surprise you because you've been around a lot and you, you're very involved in our institution, but. Um, we subsidize somewhere in the neighborhood of about $22 million a year in physician and, and provider subsidies. It's a different world It's now. a different world. Because you employ physicians. You have, have hospitalists. To. Have to. You have hospitalists. Um, right. I think cardiology's come and gone. But, but anyway, but I understand right. this. Well, ER, and, and, and maybe, yes, you have all these different relationships because they have trained that way. There, there is an income expectation. There's national averages. And so you get to a place like Columbia, Missouri, a beautiful town, great place to raise a family, wonderful academic institutions around Low here. Low cost of living. Low cost of oh, living. Oh, my goodness. But... Very low reimbursement for physicians. So do you want to take less money because you're caring for the 700,000 people in mid-Missouri? Or do you want to go to Chicago or Miami or New York? Well, you can make more money there, but the cost of living is higher. Oh, yeah. We, we, we looked at it. I looked at some competitive salaries being right. offered me. You don't end up making any more money. You don't. And, at the end and of the day. And you fight the traffic. And, but, and, but one of the things that has happened is now people turn to the large institution. And, and I think most physicians now realize that, hey, we don't have big, deep pockets either. But there's this chance for a couple of things that can happen. Number one, they like the idea of saying, you know, take some of this other noise that come from big pharma relationships and insurance relationships that are not always creating uh, positive interactions, right? When you see your, when you're paying somebody in your office who's good, they're cheerful, they help your patients, and they sit on the phone for an hour, it drives you crazy. And so a lot of these doctors are saying, hey, I don't want to deal with this headache anymore. Very few physicians, last year, uh, actually, two years ago, I believe it was two years ago, more than 80% of all physician searches were performed for employed positions. Yep. And if you look at Completed. new graduates, if you look at new graduates. That's what they're looking for. And, and, and expectations of medical students, very few. I don't know what the number is, 3%, 5%, who actually want to go out and have a private practice and be right. a, a business, a small well, business and I, person. I could, I, I, this is Troy's opinion. I have no white paper to prove. I it. want your opinion, okay. Troy. I value it. I think one thing that has happened and transformed what you probably grew up with and what I experienced early in my career, I was blessed 
to have had multiple academic institutions who wanted their students to learn in a multitude of settings. Academic trauma centers, community hospitals, community skilled nursing facilities. They wanted them to get this very broad understanding. And in doing so, and at one institution I had, we had six academic affiliations and their students came in, their fellows came in, their residents came in. And they get to see a wide variety of opportunities of how they could practice. I think what has happened in the last decade, decade and a half, is academic institutions are being forced to, to say we're going to compete to keep those dollars in our own network. And so all of a sudden students only have this one experience of normally seeing an academic environment. So they think that that's the only model that they're familiar with or comfortable with. And it, it is my opinion, but I think I've seen sort of this idea. I still love those independent physicians who choose to support the local community hospital, who want their own private entity to, to do what they want to do and, and to be kind of masters of their own domain. Um, but I think it's a dying, it's a dying it area. Dying. And the only ones who are still doing it incredibly well are those who can generate significant ancillary dollars. And when they yeah. do that, when we start getting to the cost of hospitals, I, I've got some thoughts about, well, what is that behavior doing to, to those institutions? Because, uh, you know, when you look at, well, it's not really apples to apples. Well, they do surgery, I do surgery, but I do it 24-7, 365. They get to close up shop at a certain time. That incurs additional cost, and, and, and that's some of the concerns that I have, and it bears additional risk. That's my biggest frustration with some of those things is if they get in trouble in those environments and they call 911, where are those patients going? Go to you. They're going to those kind of institutions. And so I just want an understanding of, of hey, it's really a cost-shifting kind of activity. Um, but providers, um, I think they're, they're maligned in this process because they're expected to be everything from administrators to clinicians. And in many cases, by nature, these are scientists. They're not necessarily economists. They're, not, they're smart enough to figure those things out. But they don't want to spend their life doing that. I and don't so, understand finances. So they're, they're coming to my institution and saying, hey, protect us from this noise. Protect us from that. Give me a salary. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I understand and, it. And they'll know enough because they're smart enough. They can figure out their own income expectations. And, and when we build models for them, they know how to, to, to behave appropriately for those models from an economic perspective. But many of them just don't want to deal with the headaches anymore. And, you know, you think about the fact that I can stand up this huge army, you know, this this wall of attorneys and clinicians and, and, and um case managers to go back and argue with insurance companies. You can't afford to do that in a private practice. It's just difficult. You can and barely so, afford to do it. Yeah. And so for me, um, we have a very different approach with our, our physicians who are employed and, and there's no utopia, right? There's just no such thing as utopia when you go to work every day. Um, but we built a, a governing committee. I don't even attend the meetings, not because I'm not interested, but I want them to have a voice with the people that they are most affected by. And so we, we've got nine members of an 11 member team that come together and make decisions on how's their practice going to run. We share with them the financials because they have an interest in, hey, we want to make sure that that's there. But I've just accepted for the rest of my career, we will have a significant subsidy to protect physicians um, for the income that they have earned, the income that they're, they average across the country. Um, so then what we have to do is say, well, then in exchange for that, help us manage this idea of waste and help us manage those things. Sure. We can use data to look at our individual specialties and say, hey, on average, a health system is going to lose X for a private practice in this particular specialty. 
and we measure against that. And, and the good news for us in all but two specialties, we're ahead of the game. I mean, we're, we're still negative. Um, but we've got to protect access to our physicians in a community. At the end of the day, there's no such thing as a health system if you don't have providers. And so when certain specialties just decide that, you know what, it's just not worth it to keep fighting this fight. I just don't want to fight the headache. If you would employ me, I'll stay. But if not, I'm going to leave. I know the decision that I have to make. And then we have to figure it out some other way. Yeah. I'll just add, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I think there's clearly incentive from the government to turn physicians into employees and not entrepreneurs. It kind of emasculates them and neuters their power and makes them more subservient to, their, to the will uh, of, of public health people. I, I, I don't necessarily want to say that I'm joining you in the conspiracy theory, but I will say the fewer entities that wind up responsible for their decisions, I think the easier it is to make those decisions. Once doctors are mostly employed, they cut the rates to hospitals. They don't have to fight the battle twice. And, and you and I both know that, that, like we mentioned innovation earlier with, with pharmaceuticals, and we don't want to necessarily revisit that. But w when you think about the innovative spirit that has driven a lot of clinical specialties, let's say cardiology. I, I love the, the field of cardiology. I got a board chair as a cardiologist. Um, I, I've just always sort of enjoyed that specialty because it's something I think the average person understands what a heart attack is. Not not sure. clinically, but my chest hurts. I'm having a heart attack. They and can it's self, a big deal. They can self-diagnose <laughs> that, right? <laughs> I like you die. And, and, so, and then all of a sudden, their favorite doctor is going to be a cardiologist. Yep. But it's amazing the innovation over the last 25 years that has occurred in that. When I first came into the industry, the, the ratio between going to the cath lab and having cardiothoracic surgery was about 75-25. We're now down to single digits going to surgery and those cardiothoracic surgeons Open who, chest. They can go through little tubes and whatnot. They can put in right. valves. But, but what's interesting and, yeah. is, is our cardiothoracic surgeons still have this crucial role to play, but you've seen this shift. You know, really good cardiothoracic programs used to have in the neighborhood of four to five providers and and now you see some really great community programs that, that have two that are just amazing which is our case we, yeah, have, we have two, two that great, are amazing right we've got two great ones and what what and 10 in you know interventional cardiologists right. but i have i have a generational problem mm. someday some decade hopefully a long time from now one of those two or two of those two will come to the administrator of the institution and say hey uh, it's time to retire. I'm, I'm going to retire. Well, can you go find those replacements? And and so fighting for that that resource, and we, we really are blessed in mid-Missouri to have the caliber of physicians that we do here. Um, but that's a big burden to go. you got to go find somebody just as good. It can be there. It's going to be hard Some to do. Some of the surgeries I do, no, none of the new trainees do them. I'm right. one of the only providers well, of the surgeries I do. It's interesting that you said that. Yeah. One of the things that I am noticing now is that we are being very purposeful in how we integrate new providers around the idea of surgery. The surgeons are doing it, you know, making sure that they're monitoring, uh, making sure that we're not doing certain cases until I've had a chance to observe you. Um, really good medical practices that they want to go see people in their local OR um, to assess them and say, hey, is this really the kind of physician that should be joining our group from a quality perspective? But that has a cost. You know, all those costs build up. And so when we start talking about the expense of a medical group, most people, I don't think their animosity towards physicians is as high as big pharma and, and insurance and and, and <laughs> ranking of the yeah. The, the levels and of unfortunately for me, Dante my ranking my brand <laughs> is probably above the physician side for anger and frustration. But 
but I, I think people want to have a meaningful relationship with their providers. And, and the good news is that providers who are really good, not only on the clinical side, I would argue this. I was about to make the exception statement. I don't think I make a distinction between physicians who are good with bedside manners and good clinically. Because I think yeah. if you don't have good bedside manners, you're not going to have the relationship that gives you the information you need to make good decisions clinically. And so, but I think that relationship that is built from it, you guys are a little bit protected from this whole idea of kind of the economic side. And I will say this too, and I can I, I go on the record, the world has significantly changed and the variety of, of, of earners in certain specialties is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. The day of the physician making large seven-figure numbers, I don't see it yeah. anymore. It's, it's only the occasional entrepreneur or something that will right. do right. that. Yeah, yeah. And, and where you do see it, it's normally on those physicians who spend an inordinate amount of time doing their multiple fellowship train. You just see this sort of cost picture they've already incurred. And I, I literally look at MGMA data. And What's that, the, please? It's it's the it's basically the the medical group. Management Association. Okay, they look at average salaries around the country, and so let, let's just say that uh, you know, name a surgical specialty that you'd love for me to recruit to the area. Um, the urologist. Okay, so so we got a wonderful urology group right here, but if they wanted a new partner and said, Troy, could you help us do that? I'm going to turn to this guide, and I'm going to say, Hey, we can bring them in, but it's going to have to be in this particular range. If they have experience, it can creep up to this number. There's a lower number in that. There's an upper and those number. Those numbers are higher than what they're making. It, it's it's higher than what they can make on their own. But the problem is, is that those communities that still have really really good reimbursement, the Miamis of the world, and and you, know, you see in South Florida and in the East Coast. I had a physician once I was recruiting to a previous state, New Mexico, which I loved the mission that we had to do in New Mexico because a significant portion of their, their population struggles with, with poverty and some other challenges. Albuquerque is a rough so town. It, it is. And I love my time there because I felt like we were doing something significant and really serving a population that, that, that needed the help and lovely people, uh, beautiful oh, lovely environment. Town. Lovely town. Um, but they have certain challenges. Um, I, I was recruiting a, a GI physician, and, and I won't say the specific number, but I was working to try to recruit this individual to join an existing group in the community love the hospital. At the end of the day, he said, I want to come to Albuquerque. And I had to turn him over to the providers. I had to turn him over to the providers to actually say, hey, you have to make the offer to him. I can't make that offer. And so he, he made the offer that was consistent with that he thought his group could sustain in a place that has a high mix of Medicaid and some other things. This physician called me almost in tears because he had fallen in love with the idea of bringing his family to New Mexico. And he said, Troy, I've been offered $300,000 more oh my God. in Miami. And I told him, I said, enjoy the beach. Enjoy the beach. I, I can't match that. And and, cost and, of living will burn it up. But absolutely. But, absolutely. But in his mind, with the debt that he'd incurred from oh, yeah. school. It's he, intoxicating he, he, to a young doctor coming out of training. And, and so, but, but at the end of the day, here's the nice news for us. I believe if you create a welcoming environment that's good clinically, and that's not just from the physician perspective, but making sure your system is easy to navigate, and that's a continuous battle, and we're still fighting that transition phase in, in some elements there. But um, I still believe that there is room for people who have a, a, a altruistic sense of why I do what I do. 
if someone is truly only motivated by who's going to offer the most money, I bow out pretty quick. I'm just going to be yeah, candid. They, they're not going to be doctors. They're going to go into business. Right. But, but my, my whole point being is I'll go. I have a joke I use with one of my people that helps me on my physician recruiting. Uh, we had a particular specialty that earns a, a significant amount of money, and uh, we made an offer, um, a high offer, not seven figures, but, but getting closer up in that realm. And it was, but it was within about the 65th percentile for a very experienced proceduralist in that that specialty. Okay. So <clears throat> he countered um, about forty or thirty or forty thousand dollars more. And my, my senior VP Chad Pugh, my senior VP of provider service, he's a really good guy. He walks in, he says to me, he said, hey, man, he counted another about $35,000, $40,000. I said, Chad, it's, it's not the thirty-five dollars or forty dollars that hurts you. It's the first eight hundred. dollars <laughs> I said, that, that's the number you got to worry about. I said, we're going to be okay. But I said, yeah, that, it, it feels like a big number, but we're not going to squabble over that last piece. If it's the right provider to come to a community, let's get that person here. Let's rock and roll because this community deserves really, really good providers. So right. to me, again, to me, that's value, right? I'll right. invest heavily in somebody right. who brings something significant right. to this community. That may sound like a lot of money to a lot of people. And it is a, it is a, a wonderful salary and it's a, the person's very blessed, but they earn that. Okay. They did. A I, CEO in pharma or, or health insurance making 10, 15, 20, $20 million a year does not own it. Now, we've got a couple more topics we need to uh, talk about. Okay. I want to put, talk about the newest fat little piggy come up to the trough, the electronic medical Ooh. record yeah. vendor. There are no good numbers for them, but I will tell you that. I think that's purposeful. That, right, that when Boone went independent, mm -hmm. the previous vendor, I don't know how many tens of mil. I've heard it was tens of millions of dollars to run their system. Mm -hmm wouldn't come down on their price, even though it's already in there. This is just software at this point. All the hardware's there, right? right. And we had to go to a different vendor to get a, a less expensive, I won't say cheap, but record mm -hmm. system. I don't know how much they're charging, but it's a whole new, it's yet another parasite on the system. And I'm going to talk to people about electronic records here. They will tell you, hey, at least you can read the prescription. They'll make fun of doctors' handwriting. Say, well, there won't be those errors, right? They'll say, hey, you've got all this information at your fingertip, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, you can submit your prescriptions here. Hey, uh, don't run. Hey, you can make sure you get your vaccines or your pap tests on time, right? Things that lists and computers are good at. But they don't tell you how it's the number one cause of burnout and physician frustration. They don't tell you that when you go see a patient, having 2,000 pages of records doesn't help you. You've got a few minutes to see somebody, and how do you get all this information together? They don't tell you that the EMR, which touches every aspect of patient care now, mm -hmm. all right, was never tested. Every medical device you have, every bill you take, everything has been tested for efficacy, right? when the Affordable Care Act went in, they gave these checks to bribe people to get the EMRs, right? They, they got insurance companies have bribed me and said, well, we won't even pay you until you have, unless you have an EMR, right? They never tested it. Supposedly, these systems were supposed to talk to each other, but they've purposely been made not to talk to each other. You got to print and fax these things out anyway to send them back and forth and whatnot. I'm here to tell you that EMRs are, 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 are just a disaster when it comes to morale and time. Like you may spend five minutes seeing a patient in the hospital. 
it'll take you a half an hour to try to, to take care of this computer screen, and it's, it's horribly demoralizing. Well, and, and here's the interesting thing. I'm not going to per se blame EMRs. I'm going to talk about... I will. I'll leave that up to me. Not for EMRs. <clears throat> I'm going to say the deployment and how they were designed and built. Right. Because I'm, I'm look, here, here, watch Criminal. this. Watch this. Woo-hoo. I, I have right. more computing power here than we used to launch the space shuttle. Correct. This makes my life simpler. Right. This summer, I went to go visit my son serving the military in Germany. I didn't talk to a soul. I sat in my bedroom after hours when I got home and took my last phone call, and I got my flight reserved. I reserved a home to rent all the way over in, right. in Farshant, just outside of Garmisch, and, and right. I did all this on that device. And it was easy and, and convenient. In every industry... IT is used to create better economy of scale, better efficiency, better ease of use, and to help you make better decisions. The potential is there. Potential. That's right. And that's what I want to say. It's there, Troy. I I do believe that there is an opportunity. Here's the problem. The current architecture and the current design in most of our EHRs was built decades ago. It was built decades ago. It's just layered on top of DOS. For those people not born yet, DOS is one of the original coding languages for IBM. We are we are lucky right now that we're we're using the newest version of a particular product, and um, it, it's actually a cloud-based system, which is relatively new. Um, but it still was built. Even the to me, data capture is something that should happen in the process of following patient flow. Right. right? It was built for data capture. It was never built for flow. Right. It's built for the government and insurance companies to find out what we're doing. At the expense of the physicians and the healthcare providers, right. turning us into data entry clerks. And if, if you say, okay, well, I don't have to do that in my institution because I use a scribe. Well, when you get to my donut, I'll blame it on a lot of other people because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm biased towards my I donut. have hired a scribe. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it makes your life easier and you can stare your patient in the eye. Yeah. Um, I, I had this really cool moment. Oh, you're saving all this money with the EMR, you know, but I have to have somebody help me. Right. And, and, and so to me... The, the thing that I am seeing is several years ago, and I won't name the brand, but I had an opportunity to go see uh, a very well-known player in the healthcare field that did not normally build EHRs. They, they were not on that side of it. They typically make devices, CT scanners, MRIs. And, and they had this idea that, you know what, we're going to build an innovative EHR that is following the physician and the patient's footsteps. Right. Did somebody bother to follow uh, the the flow, the workflow right. of physician mm-hmm. in designing these things? And, and so th- this was, and it, it, I saw some of the early versions of it. I'm not a provider. I'm not a physician. So I had no ability to look at it and go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. But the fact that they were pursuing it this way told me two things. Number one, it's possible. And number two, they feel that others didn't really kind of follow they didn't that model. At all. They said, how can we do billing? How can we get this information to insurance companies? How can we check these boxes? Right. And, and, and then the, the, the physician was, was an afterthought. So I'm going to give credit, even though the previous vendor that you were discussing earlier, for Boone in particular. I found they were an epic failure. Uh, something like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, but the interesting thing is they, they've got a product that most people would tell you, hey, it's a really, really good product. But it's one size fits all in terms yeah, and of Arabic is a very good language, but you try to learn it. Right, exactly. And and, and so but but the issue with with the whole deployment of that is their biggest expense really is not on the software side. They'll be the first ones to tell you that. They demand X amount of personnel to support the product. And I, my first thought was, wait a minute, you're designing a product 
that requires a ton of human intervention to be usable. Because most of the other things in my life, when you design a really cool product, it becomes simpler to use with less resources necessary. Right. And, and, and so the idea that, that we're going to make sure you have the service you need by building this, again, you saw me talk about my walls between the insurance company and health systems. If you, if you have enough people to deploy to help support this product, it will be this really, really nice working product. I'm like, well, how about build a product? I don't have anybody that follows me around to schedule uh, my – I paid to park here today. Okay. Pressing a button here. Little app. Didn't have anybody that had to come and help me do that. Um, same device earlier, I paid a bill. Same device earlier, right. I answered a message from the hospital. I answered a message right. to my mother. I mean – all of that is here, but it's very simplistic to use. Somehow we've, we've lost sight. Is there potential value? Absolutely. Mm. But we're not there yet. Mm. It is, it, it's a tool that has become very cumbersome. Um, is it getting better? Better is a relative term, but I would argue it's better. Um, but we have a long ways to go for it to reach the same level of interoperability that you see with any app you download to your phone today. Yeah. Um, you know, I've often wondered when the innovation is going to come, when people say, okay, we're going to have a platform-based product. Like, let's just use, I'll use even though people have seen that I'm using an Apple device. But imagine a world where um, an Android device has a, a base, quote-unquote, EHR, and then individual specialties can start developing, because physicians are incredibly inventive, and they can build a module that can then be used by other providers. And over time, let the market decide, well, what module right. should I use for... Right endocrinology right, or right. cardiology. Well, I and, think this is one of the cases where the government made it worse. And um, I'm not exaggerating. A colleague of ours a few years ago, he hung himself a couple ooh. hours south of here. Uh, and he was a hospitalist. And I, and through the grapevine, I know he was very frustrated. And I'll tell you, I went to discharge with this, this, this epic failure uh, I was telling you about uh, that, will not remain, that will not be named. I went to send a patient home. I saw him for five or 10 minutes. After about 45 minutes, I couldn't get the software to send to, to discharge the patient. Thank goodness I had a colleague come over. I was clicking on discharge, right? I had to double click on discharge. That's okay. why it wasn't working. Yeah. You can imagine what, what that does to your, to, your, to your desire to be a doctor. When I, when I fear the, the computer, at the hospital more than the pay, you know, than working with right. the patient, right? I don't even want to admit patients to the hospital, Troy, for surgery. It takes so because long it takes so in. long, and it's such a frustrating process dealing with this goddamn computer rather than helping the patients that we're trained to do. And we see it as a, a, a just a complete waste uh, and a meaningless pursuit. So I'm, I'm going to share a story. The um, I won't name names because I didn't ask her beforehand, but sure. the CEO of our product, which is Meditech, and we're very proud of it. Um, the fact that they're, they're trying to help us innovate around the product that they've done. Um, is it a ton easier to use? You use it every day and you realize it's not I, easier to use. I, I it, think it, it's easier because it's simpler. Okay. So it's a little more straightforward. I find it much more straightforward. And, but, but here's the thing though, that's really interesting to me. Um, she came in because she knew that we were in a stressful time. She took my entire team out to dinner and said, tell me what you hear about my product. Well, I was sitting to her right at the dinner table. She was at the head of this table. Very, very kind person. Uh, very proud of, of what they're trying to achieve. Not necessarily where they are today, but, but they were proud of the work that they had done. And I said, can we just talk candidly? And she said, yes. I said, my physicians use the expression click hell. 
Yeah. They just have click hell. They're clicking all the time. And her shoulders shrugged and she dropped her head. And I said, I'm sorry to ruin a nice meal. She said, no. Yeah. And she said something to me I thought was very interesting. What was that? She said, it was not built to be on a computer. She said, years ago when we started doing this development, she said, one of our providers walked in that, that advises us and he threw his iPad on the table and said, it will work on this. This is what I use today. This is where I touch and I swipe and I do things so much faster than typing a bunch of stuff, you know? And, and, ah, the and, retrofit and, and, and has so made it less he, efficient. He said, and so what she said was the entire plan was that it might be something that could be mostly device-based because that's what you carry with you, right? Imagine right. if you could pull this out and you had your software for your office and then you had your stuff from the OR and all that stuff was right here. It's nice if you don't have bloody gloves on, but that's a whole other problem. Well, okay. Maybe, well, maybe we'll, you describe. Right. Maybe you need to describe for that. Don't, don't touch it if you got bloody hands. Let your scribe do it. Uh, but, but they had this vision of at least next generation. Let's start thinking about what are people using. I have optimism that the competitive forces in the marketplace are either going to do one of two things. A new product will come to the market that focuses on flow and efficiency, or one of the big three-ish, there's some close by, but one of the big three that are out there today are going to realize that there's going to be a massive market for the first one of them that can transform their product so that it meets yeah. those two demands. Because it will happen, and, and I would argue that in terms of generational, healthcare is not known for great innovation because evidence-based medicine sort of sets this idea that continuation of learning takes time and, and proof and evidence. I'm glad it exists, but I think it even creeps into products like this that, you know, you, you put in an EHR and 10 years later you're using a, a newer version, but it's essentially the same EHR. I think in short order, my guess would be, and I would forecast, that one of the big providers is going to say, I'm not going to allow myself to look and feel like the others. And I think we're going to see a transformational moment. I hope they're listening, Troy. I, well, I, I, hope I know listening. one is because I talk to them frequently. I hope they're listening. Um, so that piggy was offered. A, they set the table. The government set the table for them to come in and take a lot of money and provide a lot. And I know it's giving the government a lot of data. And I'm going to do one more thing before I forget. Yeah. No one has tested. When you go to a doctor, Troy, they, they listen to your heart and lungs and all this stuff. What you're paying for is the assessment and the plan. How does the doctor or the nurse put all this information together into a logical and accurate assessment and perhaps diagnosis yeah. and a logical, effective plan? Everybody looks at EHRs or EMRs or even these electronic systems, mm -hmm. you know, do you get your, your pap test done? Do you get your flu vaccine? Well, that's perfect for a, a listing device to check. Mm -hmm. No one has tested to see, is the diagnosis correct? Oh, that is true. Yeah, there's not is much. It, no, but they don't want yeah. it tested because they don't care if it's correct. They don't. Well, there's no, it, it just disgusts me that people will put in these, these, these numbers and there's nobody to check the checkers to say, well, were they even right in the first place? And no one has tested. I, I think oh, I, I can th tell the next iteration. And I really believe this. And I've asked some questions. Predictive modeling is hugely important. And, and I think that computers can do some of that pretty well. When they see, they can sometimes identify trends and patterns about the time the physician starts to have that, that gut feeling, right? They'll just say, I just had a feeling things weren't going well. 
it can spit out something that's like, okay, I'm going to zoom in on that. that give you some help. Yeah, it can give you some help. And, right. and where it really helps us is, you know, at the end of the day, healthcare is two things. It's a relationship and it's a disparity of information. You have somebody who has a lot of it and you have somebody who has little of it. That's really what it boils down to. Okay. Physicians have a great extent of knowledge. Most patients don't have that same level of knowledge. And, and so whoever can find a way to streamline that connection between and, and, and solidify that relationship between those with the most knowledge base and those that don't have it and improve that communication and deployment of that resource, we're going to be better off. And, and so I remind people all the time, the only reason we are here is because we know more. Have humility about that piece of information, but we have to deploy that knowledge in a way. If it's trapped in a box or if you're spending your time doing your, your, your typing or clicking here or, or not getting a report because you didn't double click or something like that. Right. It's not useful. And so I, 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 I'm actually, of all the topics we've had, I'm far more optimistic that the evolutionary step forward in EHRs will be here before some of the other things will probably be addressed. Because I, I truly believe if they do this, this is horrible to think of it this way. I believe every CEO in the country would have no choice but to buy it because their physicians will kill them otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, talk about <laughs> capitalism and incentive. Yeah, you build a product that my physicians love, I will have no choice but to buy it. Well, my mood just improved, and that takes us on to our final piece of the pie, Troy, and this is where you're the true expert. Hospital care eats up about 31% of the U.S. healthcare budget, U.S. healthcare dollars. And what people don't understand, and they don't understand this about supermarkets either, is the margins of pro the profit margins right. are very thin. Mm -hmm. Like a supermarket, like if you say, oh, I'm just stealing this cart, I'm going to go joyride this, this shopping cart. That could be the day's profit for the, for the they're making like 3%, I right. believe, in a supermarket. And in doing my little, my little research, what I'm seeing on average, hospitals only can run about a 3% profit. A thin, thin, razor thin line, Troy, that you have to somehow walk. I, I had a friend who started a coffee shop with this really interesting imported coffee from all around the world. And I went in one time when I was visiting my family and I, I walked into it and he had a sign behind the, the, the counter that said, uh, I did not start my business out to be a not for profit. I just ended up that way. <laughs> <laughs> And so every time I start thinking about kind of where we are, but, you know, it, here's the interesting thing. We are the kind of institution that if we were running a 3% margin, we'd be perfectly content with that because we ultimately are a county resource, right? We, I'm a steward. I'm not the CEO in, in the sense of the, the time period. This, this building's been around for 100 years. Medical staff has been around a lot longer than I have. Right. I just get to steward it for my, my time in the sun. And at some point, someone else will have to sit that seat and hopefully be just as passionate about this community as all of the predecessors, including me. Um, so it's kind of this, this privilege. So I'm, I'm very passionate about it. But I'm going to argue something that, that if you think about it, the hospital system and the healthcare delivery system that I'm most responsible for the 31% is not 31% that, that's attributed 100% to me because I have in my equation big pharma and I have in my equation right. insurance companies and I have in my equation the providers right. and I have in my equation the EHR. Before I've ever touched a patient and used any variable cost at all, my costs are astronomical. They're a huge. I have equipment. 
People will say, well, I want this diagnosis. Well, then you probably want a really good CT scanner that can use software to say, well, is that cancer or is it not? Do I need to do a biopsy or do I not? It's frightfully expensive running a hospital, Troy. Right. And, and But now... But I mentioned several sources of those expenses that, that right. all come to bear, right? Right. If I could get, if I'm only really looking for a 3% margin, because why do you need that 3% margin? Because you want me to have that technology there. You want me to have the kind of facilities that are providing. We have a lovely building, but the truth of the matter is it's not opulent. This is not, I don't have pianists in the front lobby playing. We have a piano. It's not staffed all the time and nobody pays for it. I've been in hospitals where I walked in and some of the communities where I were that had these massive endowments and everything else. Oh, yeah. And I actually was disgusted and thinking to myself, you've got people out here that can't afford their health care. Right. And yet you've got these huge edifices to and the, the margins. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, not that I'm against no, art. No. And, and but that's I, a $10 million sculpture. I mean, right. maybe you and, and so care. when you look at like our healing garden, well, there's a purpose in having a healing right. garden there. It's a great place for somebody who's it's trapped not in an institution. It, it's very nice, but it's not opulent. Where we have to start really performing and squeezing out. We've, the good news for us is, um, our trustees and most of your audience doesn't have a huge history of kind of what's happened at this particular institution, um, but they had the courage. the The local leaders, the the trustees, had the courage to say, "You know what? We are so committed to our local community. We're going to do something that is unheard of in healthcare today. We are so committed to the long term viability of our institution. We feel like the best way of doing that is to bring back a focus on the local community, focus on those resources being used locally." And they went independent from a very right. reputable, very reputable, larger organization. Yep. Um, but 127 miles away, and maybe those priorities weren't always 100% right. aligned. And I understand that. Right. But we are so focused on, on that piece of it, we're going to take this chance and we want to be independent. So where does that give us room on this expense side? We now have to start saying to ourselves, where are dollars being wasted? You already heard me mention some of them. Um, I shouldn't have a, a letter I have to write to a major payer and say that we have nine cases where you took two weeks to give me an answer. They consumed two weeks of hospital-based resources, including one patient that was still in the ICU because they were going to be going to a, uh, an LTAC, a long-term acute care on a ventilator. They were in that list because they no longer needed our services, but they were going to need long-term sustained event services they stayed there for another two weeks i got paid not a dime more for it right because this is the one thing that people don't understand i am paid on what's called a drg a right. diagnostic related group and so right. if you come in and you have drg 487 i'm going to get paid for drg 487 and if you develop a blood clot or a it's hospital infection it's on you it's on me to take care of that and in some cases, I want that responsibility because we shouldn't be careless and we should be good stewards of those dollars. There is some incentive there, yeah. But, but at the end of the day, when my costs go up and ours are very similar to the rest of the nation, 14.8% in 18 months due to the pandemic, I got nothing from any payer. When you read articles about the fact that the average premium for insurance last year went up by double digits. Yeah didn't come from me. I didn't get paid for that. So where I think, and, and you know, what I do like about our conversations, we always seem to find on this idea of, hey, is there hope for a future? Is there hope for this path We're going to end on that. Yeah. Well, when I look at it, 
yes, because I see so many opportunities to reduce waste. You know, please, insurance executives that are listening to this podcast, if you want us to have a different relationship, tell me the regulations and criteria that you want me to abide by, and let's stop spending money on middlemen to keep us from actually taking care of patients. How much, and this is where I want your, your opinion, how much of the hospital bill, or, or ex, let's say the expense to run the hospital, which then gets turned into charges, is due to excessive regulation? And let, let's take a Tylenol. Let me, let me just use an example. Let, yeah. me, let me flesh this out. Or it can be a Kleenex. I don't care. Something you just pull out of your pocket, it's a one or two cent item. But in a hospital, you have to order it. You have to receive it. You have to count it. You have to inventory you have to it. it. You have to repackage mm -hmm. it. You got to have an expiration date. You got to pay somebody to check the expiration dates. And then you got to have somebody to pay to throw them out. And then you can't put it in the garbage. You got to put it in a special container and all this stuff. So, you have this enormous burden, Troy, of well meaning regulation. But it seems to me that you could streamline a lot of this stuff if people would just get off your back, let you run, trust you to run intelligently <laughs> and use common sense. How, how much of this, this expense could, could be cut out due to excessive regulation? You know, putting a guess on the number would, would be a little bit hard, but I, I, I need to clarify something that's very interesting to me. We see those bills, and those bills are scary sometimes, right? Charges. Scary, huge, Troy. But, but here's the interesting thing. I don't get paid off of those. You, but, but it pulls you down. It is a it, cost of doing There's business. There's an expense, right? There's an expense attributed to it. But remember, I, I get a fixed bundle for every diagnosis. And That's so when getting see, depleted, Troy, by all correct. these unnecessary expenses. And, 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 and where those, to me, where that non-value-added activity non hits it is those things like like having uh, and I'm not going to pick on this because I told you I'm very optimistic about the future of what EHRs could okay. do for us um, but having an EHR that starts allowing us to quickly identify this patient is possibly teetering on septicemia so we avoid that next progression and, and don't have them necessarily go to the ICU for something like okay. that we have the ability. And, and blood sugars. I mean, absolutely. We have blood sugars go down. It saves you a million you know, bucks. My institution is is really fortunate to be able to serve our community in a lot of different ways. We have the hospital. It's it's well known. It's been around. It's had several different names. But people just when they say Boone and it's relative to healthcare in our community, you know what they're talking about. You hear a Boone baby term, which you're very very good at helping us. People produce. that have lived here for generations come to, to your institute, our they, they institution, know it. Troy. But what's funny is it's not just Boone Hospital. We have an EMS. You know, we, we have an ambulance service. We have home health care. We have hospice. We have uh, one of the largest medical group outside of the university in mid-Missouri. Um, so all these things are, are, are sort of being stood up. And what's funny is it's not just a hospital. It's all these other things that kind of come together. If you were to take all these headaches we've talked about, bureaucracy, EHRs that don't allow us to really streamline and make some of those quick decisions, even though I'm, I'm optimistic, I will acknowledge today we're not where we need to be on those things. Regulation requirements. There's no telling how many millions of dollars are tied up in that inefficiency. Um, you know, I've already mentioned, to me, the bureaucracy of even, uh, not necessarily government-inspired, but the idea that, that I have to abide by a rule book that I don't own with payers. You know, is it? Interqual criteria, for those of you who are on the 
listening audience don't know is we have these books that are produced by by clinical specialists that tell us, hey, these are the kinds of, of, of things you look for to admit a patient for this. If they don't hit these criteria, they probably don't need to be admitted. They can go home. And it helps us understand that. Give me the rule book and help us adjust to that, but let's not put armies of people in the middle that consume a lot of resources. They sure do. I mean, if we think about it like this, and I'll, I'll, there's one other topic that I want to talk about Please. that's huge, hugely important on this idea. Get me out of the businesses that I'm not good at doing and shouldn't be good at doing. Okay? Why hospitals, well before I got involved in them, even though I've been doing it for quite a while, got involved in the idea of collections. Right. Collections, oh, right? What a nightmare. Um, and it's not, it's not a relationship I think we should be in. I'd, I'd love to say, hey, when you show up for your service, I just want you to say, we are here for your well-being, and I don't want to be asking you for money on the day you get admitted. Right. You know? But a long time ago, and now we can get into the economics of price elasticity of demand for healthcare services and some of those things. I'm not going to. Take a deep breath. We're, I'm not going to do that to your audience. We're, we're going to be winding this down. Yes. It's been a great conversation, and I, I, I want to come up with some concrete things from this conversation, Troy, that people can hear, not just to give us hope, but something that's actionable. Okay. So, number one. This All right, is, so let's go to the future. So let me, let me just finish up with the hospital. Sure. It's a frightfully difficult thing you do. You employ thousands of people, full-time 1,800, 1800 mm -hmm. people, very expensive equipment, systems on top of, with enormous regulation and mm -hmm. oversight, and the boxes you have to check. I don't know if people realize that you have to turn all these boxes green. You have hundreds of boxes you have to check. Um, that obviously are, are uh, encourage good outcomes, but are also burdensome. Yeah. So, it's just, it's just, so, so I, I just want people to understand how expensive a hospital is, and there should be things we can do to bring this cost down because it's frightfully right. expensive. It's sucking so, up thirty-one percent of our healthcare dollars, and so I guess, so I guess, let's have an eye to the future. Let's talk about hospital. Where's an eye to the future so where, where you you can start saving some money and to bring costs down or at least stop this, you know, bend gotcha. the curve of this horrible rise every year in expenses? So in, in transition, I'll, I'll share a quick anecdote and a story from, from an employee. So our institution has never been particularly good at asking for people's copays and deductibles. I mean, historically, there have been times we were better at it than other times. And, and, and you know in your private practice. There's you, a checkbox for that, I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> if you don't do that in your private practice, it's amazing the financial impact it will have on you, right? I mean, you've got to be able to pay your bills. Um, I got a very, very well-intentioned email from one of our employees who, who was very concerned over the fact that um, in her area, outpatient area, we had begun asking for copays and deductibles in an area that had not had that previously. And she was upset, and she asked me, is, is this because you guys are focusing on, on profits and earnings more than you are patient care? Um, and I thought, well, it's, it's actually both. both. It's got to be both, right? And, and I shared with her a very important stat that I think will tell us some of these things that frustrate me, and why I'll share this next first piece that I think we need to focus on in healthcare. Um, I explained to her that currently we are sitting on 15.1 
million dollars in net receivables. So cash that should be paid. Accounts receivable. Accounts receivable. So not not the bill, but the actual number that's supposed to be paid for people who've already had their insurance pay, and this is their out-of-pocket attributed to copays and deductibles. Is that likely to be collected? Probably not, right? Because it's in small dollars here, small dollars there, and and we have to go through that process. And it's not there's nothing sexy about this conversation, uh -uh. right? Nothing. Uh -uh. But when I explained to that nurse, I put it into terms I thought she would understand. Well, number one, people understand 15.1 million. But I said, that is the equivalent rate of every employee in this institution foregoing their check for two pay periods of four weeks. And I said, so to put that into perspective, I said, if I don't collect this money, that insurance companies have an agreement with me saying I will collect that money. I said, the only way to offset it is to come up with savings that they're equivalents of four weeks of care being delivered to my institution a month and so well it was on an annualized basis sure. for, for that so uh but so where does that bring us to this side of it the first thing that i would like to find is relationships with our payers that say get me out of the collections game i mean if i'm going to deliver a service let's we have agreed to rates but what happens is i get paid a portion by the insurance company we don't oftentimes know exactly what that's going to be because we don't know where the patient is in terms of their deductible their copay, we typically know the copay, but not the deductible. And so it's like, hey, if you went to the grocery store and you bought a gallon of milk, and, and let's just say that gallon of milk today is five dollars. I, I hope I'm close. It's I close. Know. Okay, I didn't know. Um, I was about to say eight dollars, but I'm not in Hawaii, so hopefully it's not eight dollars. Uh, and you go to the store. Imagine getting ready to check out and say, you know what? I think today I'm going to pay you four dollars. Yeah. And then and, and and I want you to go collect the other dollar from somebody else. We're the only industry that kind of really does that. And right. here's the other thing too. If you want co-pays and deductibles to influence behavior, I'm not the right person to be collecting that. Because at the end of the day, if somebody needs care, guess what I'm going to do? Give them care. I'm going to deliver that. It's your charter. It's 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 our charter. It's our mission. It's our moral high ground. Right. We've got to do those things. We are not a, just a run-of-the-mill business. We no. are in healthcare. And we have a responsibility, and our mission is to improve the health of the people in the community that we serve, and we take that very seriously. But take me out of that because I waste a significant double-digit, probably low-teen number on the cost to collect those dollars and, and the bad debt that associates with it. Because my view is this. The insurance companies that, that pay for that and want me to go collect that, they have the relationship with the employer. They have the relationship with the employee. If they have to collect it, collect it from them, but get me yeah. out of that business and I will save money. It's hard to ask somebody for money. Absolutely. But the, the, the girls in my office, the front office girls, they I mean, hate they, it. They, they despise it. And unfortunately, it's one of those skills they have to have. They do. Today. As a small private practice, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't do so, what I do. So the first thing, and it's not just about that component. But get me out of the business of doing things that I shouldn't have to do. Number two. Okay. Give me criteria that determines how we're going to be providing care to our collective community. Give me rules so that I don't have to have attorneys, case managers, physicians spend time arguing with the middleman who then actually has me appeal to the insurance company. And, and before we know it, we've consumed tens of millions of dollars over the course of a year arguing. It's real money, Troy. It's real That's money. real money. It's huge. So now you've identified two things. Right. What else would you like, yeah. Troy? Yes, Troy has his wish list. Number three, our communities have got to do one thing that right now is going to be uncomfortable. Okay. We've got to invest in creating the next generation of caregivers. 
we are not producing enough of anything, really, whether it is nurses, physicians, for the demand that we're going to be facing and the demand that we're going to have. What's happening today is people are having to work short. A stat that doesn't apply to my institution, although we've had significant difference in, in pre-pandemic and post-pandemic turnover rates, 25% um, of all healthcare workers, of all healthcare workers, have lost, left the industry over the last three years. Since the pandemic started, 25%. Now, we've moved some in. There have been new graduates and they've come in, but 25% of the people- But it's people, a net deficit. It's a net, well, the deficits, we have people coming in, so I don't know the net effect of that. But the issue was, is we have an aging population to begin with right. of our caregivers. Um, my uh, my new chief nursing officer has a wonderful term. She calls them her wisdom workers. Right. So we, you've lost the the the, the wisdom, the, the the life experience of so these people. She's being creative and, and she's coming up with different ways of keeping them involved in the workplace, using telemedicine for them to coach the younger nurses that have just graduated to help them. Sometimes it's just the idea. Take this with a grain of salt. Don't chastise me for it. Maybe, maybe that experienced nurse just needs to tell him it's going to be okay. That's just how Doctor So and So gets when he's mad. That's fine. Right. That's priceless. Because it happens. But but having That's that priceless. veteran to tell that rookie, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's true for but, everything in life. Yeah, we've got this to develop that next generation. And we're doing some creative things here. Stevens College is a local institution that's partnering with us to, to have a nursing school. I'm in. taking some of their PAs through me. Thank you. I'm training you. some of them. My daughter contemplated going to their PA school. She ended up at another institution, but uh, they've got their first cohort of their nursing program graduating. But, but there's several things happen with this. Number one, we have seen a legitimate shift from high-intensity inpatient services to the outside environment. But it requires us to redeploy resources in a way that are necessary. We don't have those resources to redeploy. And so we've got to be supportive of this. But I, I think if you were to say what are three major factors that would help us at our current state, those three factors would be, in my institution, that is tens of millions of dollars that we can affect with just those three initiatives. And I'm sure if you repeated this to executives all across the country, they would be facing a similar type of thing. Um, during the peak of the pandemic, um, you know, I would love nothing more, as would you, I would love nothing more than to have an infinite pile of gold that I could give to our caregivers because I truly do think they're the heroes of my institution. They come to work every day. They want to do a good job. Hopefully, they're altruistic. Um, we don't get that pot of gold to give out. In fact, you mentioned the 3% margin. I have a lot of work to do to get to a 3% margin. We're not there today. No, the and long many months, you're negative. You're that's in right. the red. There's a lot of institutions across this country, 60 some odd percent of all hospitals are expected to lose money this calendar year. Um, we were fortunate that the trustees had the wisdom going independent, that they accrued a significant amount of money to kind of help in the transition, but it wasn't transition plus post-pandemic right. effects, right? You so earn your way. you got to make it happen quicker than most want to do. But if those three things were to happen, I think you would see a transformation in the cost. And here's where we have a moral obligation to our, our audience, which is the community. We have to use those savings to benefit the community, not just create stockpiles of cash. Right. That's what drives me crazy. Which is why we're different from pharma and insurance companies. They're there to make money and, and, and make their stock prices higher for their stakeholders, their stockholders. Our stakeholders are, are our, our residents of this community. Right. We have a higher calling. 
And, sure. and we do. And, and the interesting thing, though, is that if we saw that we were going to be enduring something over that, I'd have to have a comment, and the board would, would challenge me first. Um, hey, if we're getting more and more of those resources and we're just stockpiling that, we should have better reserves than we have today. So there'll be a period of time that if we were doing really, really well, we're like, hey, let's, let's, let's stockpile this so that we can continue to reinvest in the institution for those expensive pieces of equipment. Because, you know, I, I think I read in history that I believe Boom was the first hospital to put in an MRI. I believe in Missouri, I believe. Wow. Um, obviously predates me a long time. I wouldn't doubt um, it. But, but having that commitment to bringing the best care to our local community, and I hope every executive that might have a chance to listen to this, every healthcare provider, feels the same way about their community. Um, but you're 100% right. At the end of the day, we have to have a healthy enough margin to continue to reinvest in our mission. But beyond that, let's be also responsible for creating value. And I think that's what's getting lost. And, and, and it's like, well, how much can I extract from the other players in this equation, right? How much can I pull away from pharma? How much can I pull away from, from an insurance company? It's like this zero-sum game. Right. I'd love to see us stop, get into a room, and start having conversations about how do we fundamentally change the way we're doing our business to eliminate waste. It benefits them. It benefits us. Then hopefully the dollars that are left over are used for the right purposes. And, and to me, that's ensuring that we're continuing to promote the wellness of our community. Well, that's well said. And I, I, I'm going to be a little pessimistic here. And I, I think that there are very expensive lobbyists from pharma and from health insurance that are going to insulate them from change. And I don't know how we're going to change that. But I'm certainly optimistic that uh, executives like you, in, as a fellow of the American uh, College of Healthcare Executives. College of Healthcare yeah. Executives. I'm sure you go on a retreat somewhere and take your ties off and, and 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 share these ideas. And maybe you, as a group, can start to to lower your costs, bring down the cost for healthcare in America, make hospitals more affordable and more functional. And the good news for us is that we have providers like you and others you. who step up and say, "Hey, we want to do what's in the best interest of this community." Um, it really is humbling to see the people that come to work every day who have an altruistic heart. Does that mean that they are just completely altruistic? And no, they have to feed their families right. and they have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt oftentimes that they have to pay. Uh, I'm getting ready to experience that with my daughter going off to PA school. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's going to hit home. It, it hits at home. But at the end of the day, the reason I am optimistic is because we have people who really do care about these things, that are passionate about it, they're extremely bright, they're constantly coming up with new ideas. Uh, I think the challenge is we have a lot of interest and, um, and a lot of, of inspiration to keep things the way they are today because sure. they're still trying to maximize the return on existing platforms. And we need some disruption. We, we need yeah. the ability to do that. Uh, I'll end with one of my favorite success stories of this week. I'd love to hear um, it. We, we have an accountable care organization that we participate in, and our physicians have done a remarkable job with it. It normally takes a couple of years to prove that, that it's a, a viable thing for, for you to stay in. Uh, after our first year, we have a payer that asked me to sign an agreement. Uh, they had put about 1,300 lives into that ACO to begin with, and, and they've now pushed us over 7,000 lives. And what that allows us to do is focus and channel more and more people to the region's highest quality and cost institution, i.e. value, 
And to me, that is good for the entire economy of our region, which is the number one predictor of health. And so it all works symbiotically. And the fact that we're proving out that we are a good value is paying dividends and people are aligning with it gives me hope that we can find ways of lowering costs in the future. Fantastic. Well, I love that optimistic note. Troy, thank you for coming to Boone. Thank you for being, for being such a wonderful executive. Thank you for taking time with me to discuss this very difficult topic. Yeah, and thank you for, for having us and, and having a venue that creates, uh, creates this discussion. And uh, your son, Hunter, who uh, helped set all this up, too. I'm grateful for the fact that we can have this. And, and what I like about it, we don't agree about everything, but it's, it's civil. It's civil, it. and I'm afraid that we've lost the ability to have some of these difficult conversations. And so everything didn't have to be a fight. We just have to advocate for what's right. So I appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Troy. Thank you.